Greetings and welcome to What is California, a podcast featuring conversations with notable Californians in a quest to understand the Golden State. I'm your host, Stu Van Ayersdale. On this episode, we welcome Representative Jackie Spear to the show. She is the Congresswoman representing California's 14th Congressional District, which encompasses South San Francisco and most of San Mateo County in the South Bay. Representative Spear has held that seat since 2008. Prior to that, she worked in Sacramento as a state legislator, representing roughly the same district or region in the state Senate and the state assembly. She is a San Francisco native, and this kind of blew my mind. She has pretty much resided, like called home, uh, her current district for her entire life, for the most part. Uh, She did attend UC Davis as an undergraduate. She did attend law school at UC Berkeley. And of course, she has lived in Washington, D.C. as a congresswoman, but home has always been California. I mean, she never really went away and came back. She's been based here her entire career. She did win her first election in 1980 with a spot on the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors when she was 30. And today she's wrapping up her seventh and final term in Congress. Uh, Representative Spear announced in late 2021, a little less than a year ago, that she will retire at the end of her current term. That is the culmination of more than 40 years in public service. So the minute that I heard Jackie Spear was not running for re-election in 22, I knew immediately I've got to invite her on what is California. Uh, I mean, what a career. I thought this would be a great time to talk about her early days working with her mentor, the Congressman Leo Ryan, and the arc of her work, uh, her ups and downs as a leader in California. I really loved hearing from the Congresswoman about why it's important to not wait for your shot and to do the work that you want to do. And of course, how things have changed and the leaders she respects. And also, and I, th- I thought this was really interesting, the necessity of turning California's leadership over to the next generation. Representative Spear was candid about that. And she also leveled with me about the vitriol and gridlock that has come to totally block any progress, almost any progress at all in Washington, D.C. Of course, we did discuss the tragedies that in the end will kind of roughly bookend Jackie Spears' political career, first in 1978 when, of course, uh, Congressman Leo Ryan was assassinated and when she herself was shot and nearly killed when attempting to return to California from Jonestown, Guyana, where the cult leader Jim Jones kept his following. They were there on a fact-finding mission um, and were trying to bring back some members of the People's Temple there and were ambushed by gunmen on the tarmac there at the airport. So uh, that story is fairly well known, but Representative Spear also shared um, a less well-known story from the latter end of her political career. Just last year, uh, she spoke very evocatively and affectingly and chillingly about her experience at the U.S. Capitol during the January 6th attack. Um, Jackie Spear is a survivor in the truest, most literal sense of the word. And frankly, I was pretty honored that 
she made the time to join the show to discuss her story and her work and, of course, her takes on the people and places and phenomena that make California unique to her. If you are looking for more information about what we cover here, head over to the show notes for this episode. They're right there in your podcast app or on Substack if that's where you came to the episode. Uh, I do have some links and context you can check out. And um, of course, always looking to hear about what you're thinking too. So if you have questions or comments or thoughts about this episode or anything else on what is California, drop me a line. Hello at whatiscalifornia.com. I always love hearing from all of you. So let's go ahead and get to it. Here is me with Representative Jackie Spear on what is California. Enjoy. Congresswoman Jackie Spear, welcome to What is California. It's so great to have you here. How are you today? I'm great, Stu. Great to be with you. Wonderful. Um, I want to ask all about your work and your time in Congress and also uh, working in California, in Sacramento, at the state capitol, um, your whole long arc. But let's just start with your California story from the beginning. Are you from California originally? Born and raised. San Francisco native. Now, there aren't many of us. (laughs) What part of California do you represent uh, these days? So I represent part of San Francisco and most of San Mateo County in the House of Representatives. And you've been there your whole life, you said? Literally my whole life. I went to undergraduate at UC Davis and uh, law school in San Francisco. So yeah, that's, this is, this is it. This is the epicenter of my life. (laughs) Did you ever think about branching out or going elsewhere or why did you stay here? Well, you know, I did go to Washington for a number of years when I was working for the late Congressman Leo Ryan, but you just gravitate back. I mean, many of us, I think as human beings, gravitate back to where we're from. Um, But once I came home, I was never leaving again. In what ways has your specific area, we can just stick to your district if you want, or we can talk about the Bay Area more generally, but in what ways has that area of California changed most notably since you've been there? And how do you feel about those changes? So when I was a young girl being raised in South San Francisco, you know, it was a meatpacking industry. It was um, then a steel industry. Now it's home to the birthplace of biotechnology, and hundreds and hundreds of biotech companies. Uh, It went from being kind of an Italian uh, immigrant community to uh, a very diverse community of uh, many cultures and um, many ethnic backgrounds. So it has, um, it's come of age in a very exciting way. I mean, to just put it in perspective, we are in a three-year period of time in which South San Francisco is creating 18,000 new jobs, which is pretty profound. Yeah. So what is your earliest memory of California, would you say? And why do you think that memory has stuck with you? I think as a child, you know, you live where you live. I don't know that I was kind of wedded to California per se. Um, I think my recognition of California came as a student at the University of California, It was there that I realized how special California was because of this extraordinary education system that spanned the state. And it made me really appreciate how how lucky I was, you know, to come from a place that was um, so committed to education. Now, you know, the, the tech world really didn't take off until 
probably the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, by then, I was um, you know, in high school, then into college. Um, and then the biotech, of course, it came into being um, a little bit later. Who are some Californians who've influenced you over the years or impacted you and who you are personally? It doesn't have to be a famous person. It can be an artist or a, a leader, any community members or peers, anyone. Well, I would say Leo Ryan, who was my mentor, um, certainly played a role. I, I learned um, how to be an investigative legislator. I learned how to, you know, kind of challenge the status quo, be a bit of a maverick, um, maybe not as much of a maverick as he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I look at people like Nancy Pelosi. I mean, she will go down in history as the greatest speaker of the House of Representatives. She's a woman who, I, as I've watched her, has evolved into a, a powerful feminist. Uh, didn't start out that way. She was a mom with five kids and yet um, has evolved into quite an icon in our country. Uh, Maya Angelou, who was you know, born in Oakland, Ansel Adams. I mean, you can, there's you know, many truly uh, iconic people in California who, you know, may have been transplants themselves and in many cases um, were, but who, in fact, you know, live that California dream. Uh, tell the Beach Boys uh, <laughs> they, they nailed it. You know, um, <laughs> it was Kevin Starr who was our uh, state librarian at one point who says, you know, California exists first in our imagination. Um, and I think that is so very true. So let's talk a little bit about geography. Uh, how has the lay of this land influenced or impacted you and who you are? Just the locations, the terrain, the space. How has that affected you? Well, I don't think I really appreciated how special California was until I lived in D.C. <laughs> <laughs> and then I that would do it fast enough. Um, so, you know. When I was, you know, a young adult and uh, a young legislator, I asked a lot of CEOs, you know, why here? Um, And it really has everything to do with the weather. Mm -hmm. It's the weather and it's the institutions of higher learning. And the reason why the Bay Area is such a, um, you know, the heartbeat of innovation in this country is because of those two things. The educational um, opportunities that exist at Stanford and Berkeley um, and other UCs and um, you know, extraordinary weather, which we're enjoying right now, which is about 75 degrees outside and you know, oh, pretty beautiful. I envy you. It's like 94 in Sacramento right now. <laughs> uh, you remember those days when you were here. I do remember those days. <laughs> do you have a favorite California place? A favorite California place. You know... It's so easy to take for granted how very special the state is. And it's not until I was running for lieutenant governor and traveled the entire state um, from the, you know, the beautiful redwoods to the coastline um, and down through the Central Valley. It, it, it's all beautiful. But last weekend, my daughter was moving into a, an apartment in San Francisco, and I was putting together rattan furniture on her little deck. And I looked out on the bay and the Golden Gate Bridge and saw those sailboats um, kind of lazily moving on the water. And I thought, you know, this, this is pretty perfect. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you can forget that, you know, when you're racing around town from time to time. But um, being able to, to witness that and enjoy that made me once again appreciate how very special this area is. Let's pivot to your work. I want to go back to when you got started as a public servant and back to Leo Ryan again. Um, I guess just the very, very beginning, though, what made you first want to enter public service? I was drawn to uh, politics just because I was reading about it in the newspaper. Um, I was a, a very young kid. I was like 11 years old when then uh, President John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And then literally two years later, he's assassinated. So I think that had a really profound impact on um, on me as to what I wanted to do. My father wanted me to be a doctor, and so I was pre-med at UC Davis until I wasn't. <laughs> then um, I was, you know, 20 minutes from the state capitol. And so I tell young people all the time that there's a plan for each of us. Sometimes we just don't know it. I didn't get into my first choice of college. Um, I wanted to go to Stanford. And my only other choice was UC Davis, because you only applied to two schools back then, if that. Um, And it was all meant to be. Had I not gone to UC Davis, I probably would not have pursued a life of public service. That's really interesting. So Sacramento is just across the causeway, as you say, 20 minutes away. How did you get connected with Leo Ryan and start working with him? So I worked on his political campaign when I was 16 and got the bug. And then it was, you know, again, serendipitous, pre-planned. I was uh, a freshman at Davis. He came onto campus as a guest speaker for a seminar. He turned to the students sitting next to him and said, do you happen to know Jackie Spear? Now, there were 12,000 students at UC Davis at the time. She happened to be in my dorm. And he said, do you think you can get in touch with her? She came and found me at the library, and I joined the class with him at a, you know, restaurant in town afterwards. And he said, so what are you, what are you studying, Jackie? And I said, I'm studying political science. He said, you're not going to learn anything about political science in the classroom. You should come to Sacramento as an intern. That's how it started. What was the work like? How long had you been working with him? Uh, I I guess, how did you kind of get going with him and and what were some of the lessons he taught you? So I, you know, started working for him um, and was answering constituent mail. I was, I was carting around a dictaphone machine with me, dictating responses to letters that his secretaries would then type. Um, I wrote, I was doing an independent study for a poli-sci class. I wrote a, a paper on his operation, which was you know, critical in part because I thought, you know, you've got to be somewhat um, analytical. And so I, you know, challenged a couple of things, never thinking for a moment he would ever see it. Um, I got an A minus on the paper. The secretaries wanted to read it. So I brought it into the office one day. They were reading it. He walks into the office, sees they said, what are you reading? And he said, oh, it's Jackie's term paper. He said, oh, I want to read it. He takes it from them. He reads it. He writes all over it. He crosses out the A minus and gives me a C minus and says, you don't know how to write. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I, I learned how to write better under his tutelage. <laughs> but, uh, 
Um, so I started doing that. I, he then, um, then I told him, you know, I, I, um, I had to get a paying job, so I was going to have to, you know, leave the office. And he says, well, let me see what I can do. He went to the rules committee, got me a part-time um, staff assistant job. And then I worked on a project, which was called the Master Teacher Program, which he was responsible for getting passed. It was a pilot program um, to kind of elevate master teachers and have them teach other teachers. And there was one class, one program in Culver City and one in Coronado, California. And I was kind of the staff member that would you know, fly down there and you know, talk with the um, teachers and develop the plan. And that's how it all started. Now, how long had you been working with him and in what capacity had you been working with the congressman when you went to Jonestown and were researching what happened there when he was slain and you were, and you were shot and wounded? So by that time, um, he had gone on to Congress. I had gone to um, work in his office for a year, came back, went to law school, um, graduated from law school. He then asked me to come back as his legislative counsel, which I did. Um, And this was the second year that um, I was there. I was buying a condominium in Arlington, Virginia. by this point in time, he was looking into the People's Temple and the Concerned Relatives group, and I was meeting with them and meeting with um, Debbie Blakey, who was a defector. And uh, it became really clear to him that he wasn't going to get the answers from the State Department, that he needed to go down and visit himself. So he committed to the Concerned Relatives group that he would do that. Some of them decided they were going to fly down to Uh, Guyana uh, as well. We had letters and communications with um, family members that we took with us. And then I was responsible for negotiating an invitation to go and visit the commune, which took days to do. And eventually we, we flew to this remote airstrip in the middle of the country and took a, a dump truck to the commune and, you know, met with the, the members of the People's Temple there, um, were taken on a tour, and members of the press were also there. And one of them was Don Harris, who was an NBC reporter, and two people had slipped him notes indicating they wanted to leave. So at the end of the evening, he brings these notes over to the congressman and myself, and my heart sunk, because then I knew that people were being held there against their will. So the next um, morning, I um, asked for them to come forward, and I took oral affidavits that they wanted to leave, and then more and more people wanted to. And, you know, most of this people have heard about, but um, in the end, there was a, a group of of defectors that left with us. We had to order another plane. And as we were waiting to uh, board the planes, and I was responsible for placing people on the various planes, uh, there was a tractor trailer that had followed behind us with seven gunmen on it, and they started shooting. Congressman Ryan was assassinated. Um, He was shot 45 times. I had run under the plane, hiding ostensibly behind one of the wheels, and they came and shot us at point-blank range. So I was shot five times. 
Um, it's amazing to think about that because, you know, when I was, I was alive at that time, I was very, very young. So, um, but thanks for the, reminding me that I'm old. <laughs> you were young too. I mean, you were I in your twenties, you were in your twenties, but that said, you know, I was very young and, and I think I grew up with an awareness, both of Jonestown as a cultural like a phenomenal cultural tragedy in the true sense of the word phenomenal. It was a phenomenon and very, very tragic. But I also grew up with an awareness of you as a state leader. And I did not connect the two until I was probably in my 30s. And I saw the Stanley Nelson documentary about Jonestown. I believe you're in that documentary, right? Right. Yeah. And I saw, I saw that and I thought, Jackie Spear was at Jonestown and I could not believe it. How did that incident, that tragedy, that experience influence you to undertake leadership in California and do the work you've done for the last 30 years? I would say that, you know, lying on that airstrip with, you know, my body riddled with bullets and my a bone coming out of my arm I thought I was dying. I was close to death. I didn't know it. Um, and I just, you know, I'm, I was raised a good Catholic girl. I still practice um, Catholicism. And I said that if I survived, I would, you know, never take another day for granted and that I would dedicate my life to public service. So um, it made me fearless. It made me realize that when you come that close to death, there's nothing else to fear. So it was easier for me to take on tough issues because I wasn't afraid. Mm -hmm. Now, you were 30 years old when you won your first election. Uh, obviously, you ran for a special election for the 11th district, um, but you... Your I first, lost. Yeah, right, right, right. But your first win was for the San Mateo Board of Supervisors, the County right. Board of Supervisors. What do you wish you'd known then as uh, an upstart political candidate and leader in the making that you've learned in the four decades since? Don't wait your turn. You know, I really kind of played by a set of rules that you served in the Board of Supervisors, and then you ran for the state legislature, and then you ran for Congress. I really came to Congress too late in my um, political career. And Why do you say that? Well, I was, I was 58 years old when I got elected to Congress, 57. And, you know, it's, it's, it's based on seniority. So it takes forever to get to a position of authority and everything is run through the chairs of committees. And so I had the luxury in the state legislature where I served for 18 years and had 300 bills become law. And it's a record that probably won't be broken because I served there 18 years and you can't serve more than um, you know 12 years now or 14 years in right. the state legislature. But um, I think that waiting my turn was something that I wouldn't recommend other people do. And people oftentimes don't do that in Congress now. They come, you know, directly from 
professional careers, having never served in public office before, um, or they challenge someone who's um, in their own party and uh, already elected there, um, because you know they feel they have something to offer that's different and um, you know more in sync with the district. Let me unpack that a little bit because you have been in Congress since 2008 when you won a special election to succeed the late Tom Lantos. And that was about 30 years after you first ran for that, that very seat right. in the, in the 11th district. I actually district. have the record as the um, only member or the, the longest period of time between the first time I ran for Congress and the second time I ran, cause it was 29 years. Wow. All right. That's a I very, had no intentions of coming back to Congress, actually. That's another record that uh, might not be broken. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I'm curious how your goals and your vision for a role in Congress evolved from when you ran in the late 70s to when you ran to succeed Tom Lantos in 2008, those 30 years. What changed, if anything? Well, certainly I was probably more prepared to hit the ground running when I came to Congress after serving in the state legislature for 18 years and the Board of Supervisors before that for six years. So uh, I did not know, though, where I was going to have an impact, actually. I spent a lot of time when I was in state legislature on health care and insurance issues. And so I originally got on the finance uh, financial Services Committee in the House, and ironically, it was right when um, 2008, when the financial markets just imploded. So I had a front row seat to that um, experience. But I also knew that my time was limited in Congress, and I looked at where I sat uh, on the first rung of you know a four-tiered uh, committee room or three-tiered committee room and thought, I'm never going to get in the position of having any authority. Um, and by then, I had gotten involved in the issue of sexual assault in the military. And I realized I wasn't going to have an impact on that issue unless I served on that committee. So I chose to get off what was called a juice committee and get on the Armed Services Committee. And I remember when I asked for that transfer the speaker, Nancy Pelosi said, Jackie, do you really want to do this? I said, yes, I really do. Um, and so I then got on that committee. And then over a course of about eight years was able to get to the chairmanship of the military personnel subcommittee. Mm -hmm. I think we all observe from the outside of Congress, we observe through the media uh, and through every election cycle, how Congress has changed. We can kind of deduce that as outsiders um, over the last 14 years since you've been in Congress. And um, we can draw our own conclusions about what we see or what we hear, or what we read, and how that change actually manifests or looks in the real world, right? But I want to know from your perspective on the inside, how has Congress changed? For someone who's been part of it for years now, how has it changed? And and what do you think of those changes? It's become a blood sport. And it was bad when I got there because Newt Gingrich had, you know, injected that level of um, hostility. I mean, you think back to people like Tip O'Neill, I mean, and Bob Michael. I mean, they, they had drinks after work. They were, you know, 
Uh, they found ways to, to work together. Uh, that has changed. It's got far worse during uh, Donald Trump's term. And then I think he is so um, injected you know, an animosity and hatred that has become acceptable that people's conduct on the floor and willingness to say the most outrageous things um, has exploded. And you couple that with the fact that you have social media now, which was you know, nascent when I got to Congress. Um, but social media has, has so transformed the way we communicate. And if you want more followers, the way you get more followers is to say something really outrageous. And the more outrageous, the more likely you'll be able to a attract attention and be trending on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that becomes the way one is measured. And, you know, I think of some firebrands that came to Congress two years ago who've made names for themselves. I mean, they go out of their way to be outrageous. Mm-hmm. And to be um, pugnacious because it's the way they raise money. Have you ever had interactions with anyone specifically that you can share here? Not, um, you know, not specific. I mean, I've observed them. You know, but you've never like pot. tangled with Marjorie Taylor Greene in the yeah, corridors right. of the House. Nothing like right. that. No, I, um, I, I have not. But others have, and I've mm -hmm. observed that. Were uh, you there for the January 6th insurrection? I was. Uh, I was actually in the gallery. What was your experience? It was horrible. It was, um, you know, when, they, when the police officer went to the dais after the speaker and the majority leader had left and everyone had um, moved off the House floor, um, and he said the Capitol has been breached. It was like, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I was astonished. And then we were told to, to, you know, crawl under the brass railings to get the other side of the gallery. Then we were supposed to take our pins off and lie down on the floor. And I'm looking at the front doors of the chamber. And I see these officers putting a big piece of furniture in front of the doors and the pounding on the doors and a broken glass and they've got their guns um, positioned and, and drawn to um, shoot. And then I heard a shot in the speaker's lobby. And I remember placing my cheek on that cold floor and I had this sense of resignation that came over me like, this is it. I mean, I, I survived the jungles of Guyana and I'm gonna lose my life in this tabernacle of democracy. Um, so it was, it still kind of takes my breath away when I, I talk about it. I was just thinking the same thing about how just prior to the beginning of your political career, you were kind of brought into the fire of violence and survived. And just prior to the end of your political career, you withstood the crucible of violence in Congress at the U.S. Capitol. Do you ever think of it like that, about how these incidents, these experiences bookend your political career? 
Well, I haven't really thought about it other than the fact that the, the parallels are, are bone chilling. Um, but what's most bone chilling is the fact that that was a, an attempted coup. Had they brought more guns into the building, there would have been bloodshed mm -hmm. throughout. And that it was, I remember as we were, you know, eventually got out of there and we were in this secure facility, I was looking at the TV screen and I saw these people climbing up the Capitol and it was like they were ants. And I thought to myself, how are we, how are we ever gonna get back to work here? You know, and then it's two o'clock in the morning and we're finally voting. And to think that two thirds of my Republican colleagues who were just in the same threat environment that I was, voted to overturn the elections in Arizona and Pennsylvania, I, I knew that, that as a country, our democracy was at risk. Let's pivot to your um, approaching retirement from Congress. It's not retirement. It's called evolution. <laughs> I'm borrowing words from Serena Williams, who says she's evolving. So I'm evolving. I'm just coming home to make more good trouble. I love it. Well, as John Lewis would say, with the full understanding that you still have some time left and uh, <laughs> you still have work to do, I'm sure. When and why did you determine it was uh, the time to, as you say, evolve? Well, I've been in public life for almost 40 years now. Um, and, you know, I have a husband who's been very supportive of me during the 20 years of our marriage, now almost 21. And, you know, I think he wanted us to have some time together. And I have, you know, a son who's married and, um, you know, a daughter who's a young adult. And, you know, at some point, there has to be a willingness to pass the torch to another generation. And I decided that this was the time. I had finally gotten my um, legislation through to take sexual assault cases out of the chain of command, which was a Herculean task. Um, I um, felt that this was, you know, a good time to, to come home. And I, you know, of course, the issues that have kind of exploded this year make me realize these are the issues I care about. I mean, it's abortion, it's gun violence, um, it's um, prevention. Those are all very important issues to me um, that I have had very specific experiences with and that I've been outspoken on. But um, there are great talents in Congress, young talent, um, that are really ready and willing to take over the reins of leadership. And it's, it's, time, it's their time. Like who? Who are you really looking forward to seeing thrive? There's a whole generation of them. You know what happens, unfortunately, in Congress? They're all incredibly talented people, but they don't, they're not able to spread their wings because they never quite get into leadership positions that allow them to do it. So um, that's you know, disappointing. I think this, the Republicans have a, a smarter... Um, plan. They only allow you to be chairman of committees for six years, and then you have to pass um, that baton to another colleague. And we would be served well if we created more opportunities for the 
the talent that's there to to be able to you know spread their wings. What are you proudest of from your work in Congress? I would say that uh, you know certainly the work I've done um, to deal with the quality of life for service members in the military on the military personnel committee. Um, is, is something I'm proud of, that there's still so much more work to do um, around sexual assault, around military suicides, around, among um, you know the, the fact that service families now are, are different than they were in the 50s and 60s. Both um, spouses work, and you know the, the needs and services for them are not adequate. There's medical malpractice issues and things like that. The Me Too Congress Act that changed how we treat staff if they're sexually harassed. Um, Pediatric cancer research that went from 4% to now 8%. I guess those are the things I would point to. What would you say is the biggest challenge that California as a state faces? And how do you think that challenge can be surmounted? I still think there's a reason why we're the you know sixth largest economic power in the world. Um, I think we've eclipsed Italy, uh, but I think there is a tipping point. I know in my region now, lots of successful people are leaving, either because of the high state income tax or the fact that they can work remotely now and can live in a less costly environment. So we have issues, Um, but I also think that we have the talent to to address those issues. In your experience discussing California with people back in D.C. or elsewhere outside the state, what do you find they most misunderstand about this place? I don't think they misunderstand. They're just jealous. You know, there's the ABC, um, which is anywhere but California, you know, we are an innovation capital of the country. We deliver the goods. We provide the, um, the tax base that Mississippi then relies on to clean up its water. Um, so I, um, I don't think they misunderstand. They see us as an ATM machine where they can come and campaign and fundraise off of. Um, they know that it's that California is the goose that lays the golden eggs, and um, they're just jealous. <laughs> Fighting words as you head out. <laughs> That's a good answer, though. But we've got to retain the integrity of the UC system, make sure that we continue to um, you know, produce the talent that uh, is going to you know, come up with the, who, who is going to be the next uh, Bob Swanson, Steve Jobs, um, Gordon Moore. I mean, that's, that's what we need to continue to do. We end every episode with the same question for all guests. Who is your favorite Californian, past or present, and why? Well, you know, I would, I would go back to the list I gave you earlier. There's not one person. I mean, my favorite Californians are the people that recognize that this is a very special place to live and work and that we have an obligation to be the guardians of um, this great land and um, protect and promote it. Um, You know, I I would say Leo Ryan, Nancy Pelosi, Maya Angelou, um, Ansel Adams. I mean, those those are great Californians that have um, 
provided us with um, iconic leadership that we can never forget. Congresswoman Jackie Spear, it's been such a pleasure talking today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Stu. All right, there you have it. Congresswoman Jackie Spear, thank you very much to the Congresswoman for dropping by What is California? Really appreciate that. It's a real thrill to talk to her and hear all about her four decades plus in public service and maybe a little bit about what's next. So I know there's a lot going on right now for her and for her to make the time to talk to us means a lot. So thank you to her and thank you to you, dear listener. Thank you for listening. As always, very grateful. I appreciate it quite a bit. What is California is produced, hosted, and edited by me, Stu Van Aersdale. Our theme music is by Sounds Supreme. You can find us on Twitter at WhatCalifornia and subscribe to the free Substack newsletter at whatiscalifornia.substack.com. That will get you a free podcast episode in your email inbox every Tuesday, as well as a roundup of cool California stories in our weekend links every Friday. Again, that is free via the Substack newsletter platform, whatiscalifornia.substack.com. You can always email me too at hello at whatiscalifornia.com. It's always a pleasure to hear from you, whether it's just comments, questions, thoughts, suggestions, love notes, hate mail, marriage proposals, other stuff I haven't even thought of yet. Drop me a line. As always, it's hello at whatiscalifornia.com. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked What Is California, please, please, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts in particular. It does help new listeners find us. It really works. So thank you for all of you who have reviewed us. And thank you in advance to those of you who are racing to Apple Podcasts to review us as we speak. That's going to do it for this episode from What Is California HQ in beautiful Sacramento, California. Again, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. I'll catch you next time. Until then, as always, keep your eye on the bear.